Uranium and gold for lactinium and indium and gallium and iodine and thorium and thulium and thallium. Doctors suspected poisoning and gave the patient doses of vitamin B12. What poison did they suspect had been used? And uh, many RAF bombers that returned to England after bombing runs over Germany had holes from anti-aircraft fire on the bottom of their fuselage. A decision was made to place extra armor in those areas that were most often hit. Why was this the wrong decision? If you know the answer to one or both of those questions, or have any other scientific query, you give us a call at 514-790-0800 or text to 514-800. I'm Joe Schwartz, and uh, I'm a professor of chemistry at McGill, and I also direct the university's Office for Science and Society, where we have a mandate to separate sense from nonsense, myth from fact. Difficult chore these days. But uh, we try to struggle on and uh, try to do that for you and keep you up to date on what happens in, in science and uh, try to separate, you know, the, the nonsense, uh, sort of the wheat from the chaff is the way that I like to talk about it. But anyway, I, I uh, <clears throat> discuss these things with you here on Sunday afternoons. And I also try to promote science by asking you intriguing questions. And, uh, you know, uh, obviously they have neat answers. All right. So let me just repeat the questions that I asked. Doctor suspended poisoning and gave the patient doses of vitamin B12. What poison did they suspect had been used? Next question. Many RAF bombers that returned to England after bombing runs over Germany during the Second World War had holes from anti-aircraft fire on the bottom of their fuselage. A decision was made to place extra armor in the areas that were most often hit. This, though, was the wrong decision. Why was that decision wrong? So give us a call, 514-790-0800, or you can text comments, answers to 514 800. Uh, Let me uh, talk about some things that I think are interesting, and hopefully you find them interesting as well. Polystyrene. You're familiar with it. That's the plastic that is used in plastic cups. Uh, It's used in cases for compact discs. You remember compact discs? They're kind of disappearing. And, of course, in their foamed version for coffee cups and packaging peanuts. But polystyrene actually goes back to 1931, when it was first produced by the IG Farben Company in Germany. <clears throat> well, as you know, as I've spoken about that, uh, the IG Farben Company has some kind of, a, uh, let's just say, non-stellar history in many areas because it was uh, one of the companies that during the Third Reich was used to uh, produce uh, uh, gas for the gas chambers. Uh, And of course, also it was uh, involved in the German military effort in every way, producing synthetic rubber, producing fuels, producing weaponry, etc. But anyway, in 1931, of course, this was before the the Third Reich, the the company... uh, uh, particularly uh, one of its uh, researchers uh, came up with uh, 
this material that we call polystyrene. But historically, it actually dates back to 1839, when Berlin apothecary Edward Simon distilled an oily substance from the sap of the oriental sweet gum tree, and days later found that it had polymerized. We didn't know what had happened, but it had turned into a thick jelly-like material. And in 1866, French chemist Marcelin Berthollet figured out that a polymerization reaction had taken place, whereby small molecules had joined together in, in a chain. Those small molecules were a compound that was named styrene. And that's when, uh, you know, I.G. Farben came into the picture, as I said, 1931, and they found a way to produce styrene from petroleum and convert it into polystyrene. About a decade later, chemists at the Dow Company found that polystyrene could be expanded into a foam by introducing a gas that functioned as a blowing agent. And this foamed polystyrene proved to be great for insulation, and of course, it found numerous other uses. At first, the blowing agent was Freon, but was replaced by pentane or carbon dioxide when Freon was found to be harmful to the ozone layer. Today, the main concern about polystyrene, which you can recognize by the number six in the triangular recycling logo, is that it is difficult to recycle. But uh, methods are being worked out to depolymerize it into styrene monomers that can then be used to make fresh polystyrene. But um, there is a movement, of course, and a very legitimate movement, to reduce our use of uh, uh, foamed polystyrene. Uh, Obviously, there are ways to get around using uh, the foamed uh, plastic uh, coffee cups. You can use reusable uh, mugs. Of course, when you buy these things in the store, that's a little bit uh, different. Uh, but <clears throat> we really need to cut down on our use of, of plastics. Now, that does not mean eliminate them. I always get annoyed, you know, when, when people come up with statements like, you know, we we need to strive for a plastic-free world. I mean, this is absolute nonsense. Uh, plastic is such an integral part of our life. We can't live uh, without it. Uh, if you take a look at a hospital, uh, every, every, just about every room in a hospital has numerous plastic uh, uh, items in it. If you like, take a look at an operating room, plastic all over the place, uh, from the various kind of covers to, to, to the, the uh, coating of the machinery to, to the uh, tubes that are used for the catheters. I mean, it's uh, impossible to run a hospital without plastics. It's impossible these days to, to make uh, uh, airplanes without plastics. That's what makes airplanes possible, the lightness of plastics. And if you take a look in your car, the inside of it is, is totally plastic. Uh, so to, to suggest that we can live in a plastic-free world is, is absolute nonsense. But there are, of course, lots of problems with, with plastics. For example, uh, fishing nets are, are discarded in the ocean at an absolutely frightening rate. And those fishing nets uh, will entangle fish, entangle turtles, uh, and they are a real uh, hazard. But those nets don't jump into the ocean by themselves. They are discarded. And that should not happen. There should be legislation about that. Uh, also, we have to uh, certainly, uh, you have to know 
that there are many, many plastics that uh, uh, we can do without. I mean, let's face it, we, we can do without the single-use plastic straws. You can learn to drink from a glass without a straw. You can also certainly um, <laughs> learn to use bags uh, that are reusable. So there are all kinds of ways to cut down on the use of plastics, but it's very annoying to hear that you know people want a, a plastic-free uh, society. I mean, plastics uh, have revolutionized our modern life, and uh, by far, mostly for the better. But of course, there are legitimate issues that have to be raised. And you know, if we go back to the 1960s and that classic movie. 1967 movie, The Graduate, you remember that, when young Benjamin is uh, being defeated by his parents because he just graduated from college, and the family friend sort of drags him over to the corner and whispers uh, in his ear, uh, plastics, that, you know, this is the industry that he should be getting into because, of course, at that time, plastic industry was burgeoning. There, there were uh, no mean things being said about plastic in those days. Uh, people were reveling in Tupperware, in, in uh, vinyl roof cars, etc. So there was pretty good advice. Benjamin didn't take that advice, uh, but, uh, you know, we don't know exactly what profession he went uh, into. But uh, in any case, in the 1960s, certainly it was uh, not bad advice to tell someone to go into the uh, plastic industry. So uh, uh, we're not going to live in a world without plastics that is totally unrealistic, but we do need to live in a world where we exercise great care about how we use plastics. Science you can use. The Dr. Joe Show on CJAD 800. So I've got answers to both the questions that I posed. Uh, first of all, uh, I asked about uh, the doctors who suspected poisoning and gave the patient doses of vitamin 12. And I want to know what poison did they suspect? And I did have the correct answer texted in. It was cyanide. Yep, one of the ways to try to... Uh, produce an antidote for cyanide poisoning is to give the patient vitamin B12. And the reason for that is that the molecule of vitamin B12 has an atom of cobalt in the middle of it, and cobalt binds to cyanide and can remove it from, uh, from the body. And then there were several people who had the correct answer to my question about the RAF bombers. Now, that is a classic question. This is not one that uh, I initiated. Uh, this is, um, it's, it's a question that is very often posed when discussing, making observations and coming to the wrong conclusion. And uh, I asked how it was that when uh, bombers were returning to England after a run over Germany, and had holes from anti-aircraft fire on the bottom of their fuselage, and a decision was made to put extra armor in those areas where there were the holes. Uh, 
why was this the wrong decision? <clears throat> well, it was the wrong decision because they did not investigate the airplanes that did not return, which of course would have been uh, difficult to do. But the airplanes that did return with the holes in them managed to return despite having been hit by the anti-aircraft fire. So the anti-aircraft fire that brought down the planes that did not return hit them in different places than the bottom of the fuselage, such as the wings or the tail. So the proper decision would have been to put extra armor on those places, not on the ones where there were holes, despite the fact that those planes uh, survived the trip home. So uh, here was an observation that seemed obvious. You know, you've got these planes and they have bullet holes on the bottom. So therefore, next time they go out, you should have extra armor on the bottom to prevent uh, the shells from penetrating there. But the real problem, uh, as it turns out, was when the artillery fire hit other parts of the plane, like the, the wings or the nose or the tail, because those planes went down and never returned. So yes, we did have the correct answer to those questions, uh, which means that I have to pose another question. What is the Styrian defense? S-T-Y-R-I-A-N. What is the Styrian defense? If you know the answer to that, uh, 514-790-800 or text to 514-800. I also told you that I was going to tell you about the American Chamber of Horrors. No, this is not a a replica in the U.S. of uh, Madame Tussauds Chamber of Horrors, as you may have seen in London. Uh, That, indeed, is a pretty interesting tourist attraction. You go to Madame Tussauds, where you can see all kinds of wax figures, and you can go downstairs to the Chamber of Horrors, where you see all kinds of of, uh, historical uh, madmen who created uh, terror. Anyway, the uh, American Chamber of Horrors brings us to a different story. There's no actual chamber, but there were indeed horrors for the public to see. And all they had to do was to peruse an exhibit that was organized by the U.S. Food and Drug Administration in 1933. This was a traveling display that featured products that had the potential to harm consumers, yet were out of reach of the Pure Food and Drug Act of 1906. That had been introduced, and it was, in fact, the first ever law that protected consumers from uh, uh, unscrupulous merchants. Anyway, that act had made uh, misleading claims on labels unlawful, so that if you were selling a drug, and you made a claim on the label that was not true, then the FDA could go after you. However, that law did not address claims made in advertisements, and it did not cover cosmetics. So there were a lot of problems. Products like Coremlu that claimed to eliminate unwanted hair, and Banbar, which was offered as an alternative to insulin, and nuxated iron, which promises to invigorate, rejuvenate, and enhance athletic performance. 
These were readily available to the public. What did they contain? Well, respectively, uh, the hair product, highly toxic thallium acetate, that would indeed make your hair fall out, but it could kill you. The insulin replacement was worthless extract of a weed called horsetail. And the nuxated iron was a mixture of iron supplement and strychnine from the seeds of the nux vomica tree, obviously potentially poisonous. So something had to be done. Under the direction of Ruth DeForest Lamb, who was at that time the FDA's chief education officer, and Chief Inspector George Larrick, uh, who was the FDA's uh, head at that time, the agency mounted an exhibit of some 100 dangerous products and uh, with it managed to garner extensive media attention, especially when this exhibit was shown at the Chicago World's Fair. The message the FDA wanted to convey to the public was the 1906 Act had to be updated because it did not give FDA the authority to protect the public from deceptive products that were worthless and often toxic. One of the most dangerous pharmaceuticals targeted by the FDA exhibit was dinitrophenol. It was claimed to accelerate metabolism and produce rapid weight loss. Actually, the claim was valid, and it could reduce it could produce rapid weight loss. However, by the 1930s, scientists had also discovered that dinitrophenol causes cataracts, low white blood cell counts, and a potentially lethal elevation in body temperature. Yet the FDA was powerless to act because dinitrophenol was sold as a cosmetic and was therefore outside the scope of the 1906 law. The story of dinitrophenol is really a fascinating one. It begins uh, in 1847 with the discovery by Italian chemist Asanio Sobrero that glycerine reacts with nitric acid to produce nitroglycerin, a high explosive. That stimulated researchers to investigate nitrating other compounds. As a result, trinitrotoluene, TNT, and dinitrophenol were produced and found to be useful by the military as explosives in artillery shells. And during World War I, a number of workers in French munitions factories where such shells were produced began to experience weakness, dizziness, excessive sweating, and weight loss. And it was the weight loss that intrigued Stanford University clinical pharmacologist Morris Tainter, who wondered about the potential use of dinitrophenol as a weight-controlled drug. Indeed, he found that it increased metabolism and led to weight loss without dieting. His published findings were seized upon by devious marketers who unleashed a cascade of products with names like Nitromant, Nitrofen, and Reducel, claiming quick, safe weight loss without dieting. There was weight loss, all right, but it certainly wasn't safe. Before long, there were reports of cataracts, rashes, nausea, convulsions, liver failure, and deaths. And these dangers were highlighted in the Chambers of Horrors display. And uh, they became a significant factor when President Franklin Roosevelt 
signed in 1938 the Federal Food, Drug, and Cosmetic Act, which finally gave the FDA power to remove dangerous substances from the marketplace. And one of those was uh, dinitrophenol. You're listening to the Dr. Joe Show. Do you look upon the universe with wonder in your eyes? Do you tingle with attention when you're taken by surprise? If a problem should perplex you, does it put your brain in gear? Then you're ready for adventure on the science frontier. I'm still looking for the answer to my question about what is the Styrian defense? What is the Styrian defense? And let me pose yet another question for you guys. Who uttered the phrase, gentlemen, this is no humbug? 514-790-0800. If you have any questions, comments, uh, or you can text to 514-800, which at this point is the best thing to do because I understand that there are some problems in the studio uh, fielding calls. Tattoos are very popular these days. I mean, especially with the hot weather and people wearing tank tops and shorts, you see them all over the place. But you know what? There's a lot of interesting history with tattoos. On a fall day in 1991, two Germans hiking in the Alps near the Italian-Austrian border stumbled across what they initially believed to be a modern corpse frozen in the ice. Once the body was retrieved, however, authorities discovered that it was anything but modern. The mummy, nicknamed Utzi after the valley where it was found, had survived in the ice to the ripe old age of 5,300 years. Analysis of the remains showed that when Utzi died, he was a 30 to 45-year-old man standing roughly 160 centimeters tall. Mystery surrounds the exact circumstances of Utzi's death, although evidence suggests a violent one. That, however, is not the only secret Utzi hides. He has over 50 lines and crosses tattooed onto his body, the earliest known evidence of tattooing in the world. Most of the tattoos are on his spine, knee, and ankle joints. The locations of many of the markings are consistent with traditional Chinese acupuncture points, specifically those that are used to treat back pain and stomach upset. What is intriguing is that Utsi lived roughly 2,000 years before the oldest generally accepted evidence of any kind of acupuncture, and he, of course, lived far west of acupuncture's purported origins in China. X-rays revealed that Utzi had arthritis in his hip joint, knees, ankles, and spine. Forensic analysis discovered evidence of whipworm eggs in Utzi's stomach, known to cause severe abdominal pain. It is therefore possible that Utzi's tattoos did in fact play a therapeutic role, and that acupuncture has a slightly more complicated history than previously believed. That's a theory that was put forward. I'm a bit suspicious about that, but it's an interesting story. Anyway, before Utzi poked his head through the ice, the earliest conclusive evidence of tattoos came from a handful of Egyptian mummies that date to the time of the construction of the Great Pyramids, about 4,000 years ago. Indirect archaeological evidence, that is, statuettes with engraved designs, 
that are occasionally associated with needles and clay discs containing ochre suggest that the practice of tattooing may actually be much older and more widespread than the mummies would have us believe. Ethnographic and historical texts reveal that tattooing has been practiced by just about every human culture in historic times. The ancient Greeks used tattoos from the 5th century on to communicate among spies. Later, the Romans marked criminals and slaves with tattoos. In Japan, criminals were tattooed with a single line across their forehead for a first offense, for the second offense, an arch was added, and finally for the third offense, another line was tattooed, which completed the symbol for dog, the original three strikes and you're out. Evidence suggests that the Maya, Inca, and Aztec used tattooing in rituals, and that the early Britons used tattoos in certain ceremonies. The Danes, Norse, and Saxons are known to have tattooed family crests onto their bodies. During the Crusades, some Europeans tattooed a cross on their hands or arms to mark their participation and indicate their desire for a Christian burial should they not return. From the Tahitian tatao, which means to mark or strike, the word tattoo refers to some of the traditional modes of application where ink is tapped into the skin by using sharp sticks or bone. Certain people in the Arctic, however, have used a needle to pull carbon-embedded thread under the skin to create linear designs. And still others have traditionally cut designs into the skin and then rubbed the incision with ink or ashes. Modern electric tattoo machines are modeled on the one patented by New York tattoo artist Samuel O'Reilly in 1891, which itself is only slightly different from Thomas Edison's electric engraver pen that was patented in 1876. The needles of a modern machine move up and down at a rate of between 50 to 3,000 vibrations per minute. They penetrate only about one millimeter below the surface of the skin to deliver pigments. Our bodies treat the injected pigments as non-toxic foreign elements that need to be contained. So certain types of cells in our bodies engulf the minute amounts of pigment. Once full, they move poorly and become relatively fixed in the connective tissue of the dermis, which is why tattoo designs do not generally change with time. A pigment's molecules are actually colorless. Those molecules, though, are arranged into crystals in various ways, such that the colors are produced when light refracts off of them. And that's what happens with these inks that are used in tattoos. And uh, these pigments are often made with metal salts, uh, those are generally uh, innocuous because, you know, it, it, it's not toxic metals that are used. There are also organic pigments that are used. But uh, the fact is that, that uh, the manufacture of these pigments for tattoos is not very well regulated. And it is very hard to know what exactly the individual uh, tattooers are, are using. And uh, I always find it kind of... Uh, interesting that some of the people who are most into a healthy lifestyle and who shop at health food stores and who exercise a great deal are the ones who tattoo themselves uh, because you know i i don't think it's particularly dangerous but let's face it i mean putting various kinds of dyes into your body 
has some potential for toxicity because over the years, some of these can be leached into, into, the, uh, into the bloodstream. I mean, nobody has really, uh, as far as I know, studied uh, whether or not uh, tattooed people have a different health outcome than uh, others. Anyway, the pa- popularity of tattoos has continuously risen and fallen uh, through time. Uh, currently, of course, the practice is, is booming. And uh, estimates are that roughly one in every seven people in North America, that's a lot of people, have at least one tattoo. Uh, through time and around the world, the reasons for getting tattoos are numerous and varied. They include religious purposes for protection or as a source of power, as indication of group membership, status symbol, artistic expression, uh, cosmetic appeal, and as an adjunct to some reconstructive surgery. And uh, uh, it's sort of an interesting thing scientifically. I I think I will look uh, more carefully into whatever literature may be available on on potential toxicity due to uh, tattoo ink. Uh, But uh, I don't think it's very serious. Otherwise, we would probably have seen uh, problems. But nevertheless, you know, I would not rule out that uh, long-term uh, effects of tattooing uh, may sometimes be seen. Anyway, I, I thought it was just, uh, you know, very interesting to see that uh, Otzi, who is uh, 5,300 years old, already was uh, tattooed. We are born to do science. A baby can do it and so can you. No, the Styrian defense is not a chess defense. Uh, I think that probably you're thinking of the Sicilian defense, which is indeed uh, used in, in chess. No, the Styrian defense has nothing to do with chess. I'll give you a clue. It's a courtroom maneuver. If you know what it is, you give us a call at 514-790-800 or text me at 514 800 the other question that I asked was, uh, who uttered the phrase, gentlemen, this is no humbug? Uh, I like paintings, uh, but I especially like paintings that have some sort of a, a scientific theme. And one of the most famous ones, and in fact, uh, a very good copy of it uh, hangs in my office, it's called The Discovery of Phosphorus painted in, 19, in 1795 by Joseph Wright. It portrays a classic experiment that was carried out in 1669 by the German alchemist Hennig Brandt, who, like many alchemists, was exploring the possibility of transmutation, namely turning base metals such as lead into noble metals, particularly gold. This was not only for the monetary value of gold, the metal also represented immortality, since unlike other metals, it never tarnished. One theory suggests that Brandt believed the yellow color of urine was due to gold, which was the secret to life, and he believed that if he heated urine to dryness, he would be left with a residue of gold. This could even be the key to immortality. As he carried on with the experiment, the sun went down, and as the urine evaporated, his flask began to glow. 
He probably thought he had discovered the philosopher's stone, the mythical substance that could change matter from one form to another. What he actually discovered was the element phosphorus, which he named from the Greek expression to carry light. What actually happened? Well, the heat broke down organic compounds in urine to yield some carbon that then reacted with phosphate in the urine, stealing away oxygen and leaving phosphorus behind. Although alchemists are often portrayed in history as charlatans or blunderers who did not recognize the futility of transmutation or the search for immortality, the fact is that their efforts led to discoveries, like that of phosphorus, which laid the foundations to modern chemistry. And, uh, uh, of course, you can find the painting online, so you can look at it. It's called The Discovery of, uh, of Phosphorus. And it really is a beautiful painting with a dark background, and in front, you see Hennig Brand kind of lit up by the glowing uh, uh, phosphorus. So, uh, yeah, these uh, the paintings that are, are, you know, portray some events in scientific history are, are, are really neat. Uh, my uh, favorite, though, uh, well, I... My guest favorite, although I have I have several that I really like, is the painting of uh, Lavoisier, Antoine Lavoisier, and his uh, wife Marie by Jacques-Louis David, uh, the French painter. Uh, it's a very large painting, and it hangs in the Metropolitan Museum of, of, of Art. And it shows uh, Lavoisier with some of his uh, glass apparatus. Uh, Lavoisier was... Uh, uh, is regarded as certainly one of the fathers of, of chemistry. Uh, he introduced uh, chemical nomenclature as we know it. He was the first one to show that water was made of hydrogen and uh, oxygen. He was off also the father of uh, of metabolism. And actually, I wrote an article about that yesterday in the Gazette uh, about uh, you know how uh, using a guinea pig he found that uh, respiration was very much like combustion. He actually constructed a very primitive calorimeter, which was a chamber into which a guinea pig could be placed. It was surrounded by ice, and he measured the amount of ice melted, and he figured that the heat that was required to melt the ice was produced by the guinea pig as it was inhaling uh, oxygen and exhaling carbon dioxide in a combustion process. Uh, So, Metabolism is just the the uh, total energy consumption by all of the reactions that are going on in the body all the time. You know, it takes energy to fuel our kidneys, our heart, etc. That requires a lot of energy, and the the uh, all the reactions that produce that energy are collectively referred to as as metabolism. And people, of course, can have. Uh, different degrees of metabolism. Some people are very efficient at converting uh, food into into energy, and some people's uh, metabolism is not so efficient. And of course, if you have a metabolism that uh, is pretty slow at, at um, generating energy from the food that you eat, then some of that food is going to pile up in the body and put on weight. And uh, Lavoisier was, you know, one of the first to explore this whole business of, of metabolism. Uh, so I really admire that portrait by uh, Jacques-Louis David. And as I said, the original is the Metropolitan in New, in New York. But I have a very large um, print of that 
that uh, hangs in the lobby here of the Automass Chemistry Building at McGill because uh, I think it is just an ideal symbol for chemistry. Another uh, painting that you may be familiar with, and uh, that also was painted by Jacques-Louis David, uh, The Death of Socrates. Uh, Socrates, the great philosopher, uh, was sentenced to, to death because it was believed that he corrupted the minds of youth, which he did not do. And in those days, the sentence was carried out by making the victim drink the juice of the hemlock plant. And uh, the famous painting, which also is in uh, the Metropolitan Museum in in New York, uh, shows uh, Socrates just about ready to consume the uh, fateful uh, beverage. Uh, Hemlock, of course, is a plant. And once again, here's an example that nature is not always benign and that some plants produce uh, very, very toxic uh, uh, substances. Okay, I finally do have an answer to my question about who uttered the phrase, gentlemen, this is no humbug. That was uttered in 1846 by John Collins Warren, who was a professor of medicine at the Harvard Medical School and performed the first recorded surgery under ether anesthesia at the Massachusetts General Hospital. And uh, the anesthetic was administered by William uh, Thomas Green Morton, who was a dentist. And, uh, of course, there is a huge (laughs) backstory to this that I've often told and have written about. Uh, Anesthesia uh, was introduced in in the 1840s. Before that, Surgery was carried out without any anesthesia. Amputations would be performed without any anesthetic. You can imagine the unbelievable torture that that, uh, that was associated with. But anyway, uh, uh, William Morton found that ether could be used as an anesthetic. He got that advice from um, Professor Jackson at Harvard University, whom he had consulted. And Jackson had said that he had noticed that when his students were experimenting with ether, they would become drowsy. And uh, Morton then experimented with it. He found that indeed it could put people could put people to sleep. And when uh, surgery was performed in 1846, and uh, ether was used successfully, and uh, uh, a tumor was removed from the neck of a patient. John Collins Warren turned to the audience of physicians and he said, gentlemen, this is no humbug. And ether anesthesia was born. And we have run out of time. And that's it for us today. You've been listening to the Dr. Joe Show and you can listen again next Sunday, same time, same station. Until then, I'm Joe Schwartz, hoping all the chemistry in your life comes out just right. <laughs>